This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, January 18th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. When courts defer to the regulatory edicts of executive agencies, it should be for a very good reason. The problem is that it's hard to find a very good reason, and courts often defer as a matter of course. That deference, so-called Chevron deference, is once again going before the U.S. Supreme Court. Cato's Tommy Berry and I discussed another deference case in which Cato filed a brief, as well as the case going before the high court. What does the argument for Chevron deference rest upon? What's the what's the good case that you can make on behalf of Chevron deference? The strongest case is probably based on agency expertise, um, agency familiarity with the factual background or the policy reasons why a law might have been passed. Uh, the difficulties with implementing it. Uh, as best we can understand, uh, the impetus for uh, the judiciary essentially creating the Chevron doctrine was a notion of judicial humility, that that agencies, you know, if it's a statute about regulating air quality uh, parts per million, these are issues that judges haven't been studying their whole lives. And so uh, a bureaucrat who's in an agency specifically focused on just applying one statute uh, might know that statute better than a judge and and might have a better sense of what Congress was trying to accomplish with it. Now, to the extent that Congress, see, I think members of Congress like Chevron deference uh, because in some ways it gives them a pass for passing a law that is, uh, could be more, could be vague. And um, then when the agency makes a good faith effort to interpret what authority they've been given, Uh, Members of Congress can uh, wag their finger at the agency and say, well, this isn't what we intended. But we're we're in a situation where Chevron deference, is it fair to say that it's on the wane? Uh, It's a mixed bag. It's on the wane at the Supreme Court, but not so much in the lower courts. And that's an unusual situation and probably an untenable situation long term. Uh, So at Cato, we recently did a a study with my uh, legal associate, Isaiah McKinney. We looked at circuit court opinions uh, going back in 2020 and 2021, and about 50 percent of them, uh, when Chevron was was invoked by the agency, uh, the court said, yeah, the statute's ambiguous, so we're going to defer. Uh, that's still a pretty high amount. When you care, compare that to the Supreme Court, over the last six years, it only had 10 cases where it uh, applied Chevron. And in nine out of 10, it said, no, this is clear. Uh, we're not going to defer under ambiguity. Uh, so when the Supreme Court says ambiguous or when it applies the test for whether it's something's ambiguous, it seems to be applying a different test or it seems to be applying a much higher bar than circuit courts are applying. So uh, help me understand the difference, at least as uh, judges might interpret it, ambiguity and vagueness. Yeah, great points. I mean, ambiguity, ambiguity is probably more about, I think most judges would say, uh, more about the statute just simply doesn't doesn't speak to it. Uh, it could be that the statute, um, you know, is so to take the case uh, that's going up to the Supreme Court potentially now, where we recently wrote a brief. Uh, there's a law that says uh, an agency, if it wishes to, can require monitors on board fishing vessels. 
Uh, what about the question of can it also require that those vessels pay the salary of the monitors? So not just force them to take them on board, but force them to pay about 700 bucks a day for the privilege of, of having them on board. The statute's silent. And so is silence ambiguity? Uh, is it not addressing the question? Or as some judges would say, do you simply have a presumption that something is an agency does not have a power unless the statute says they have that power? And then maybe it's not ambiguous, or maybe that's a rule uh, that can give you a consistent answer when statutes are silent, since, of course, statutes can never be infinitely long and can never explicitly address every single possible contingency. Well, I guess what I'm getting at with vagueness is the idea that judges could look at a statute and say, well, this, this law is hereby void. Indeed. And in criminal law, they're much more likely to do so. But again, there's there's an unusual difference there where in the criminal law, um, judges have been pretty good about pointing out that people really need to know in advance what's required of them. But then when we move over to agency law, uh, judges, unfortunately, in my view, have been much more willing to allow Congress to be very vague, as you said, uh, and then let agencies fill those gaps. And then all too often, however the agency chooses to fill the gap, that's the rule everyone needs to follow now. It appears that Chevron deference will again be before the Supreme Court. But first, describe the case that we filed a brief. Yeah, so this is a, a, a weird and unusual case. Uh, you wouldn't necessarily think this is the stuff of constitutional law. It's a pretty small company based in the mid-Atlantic that goes out fishing for herring uh, in the in the New England waters. And they were it's a tough a tough business. They only can fit about five or six people on a boat, uh, and then the rest of that is taken up with the equipment and the herring. And uh, the agency, the the fisheries agency, started requiring them to carry a monitor on board, essentially a, a government-imposed uh, bureaucrat who's making sure that they don't catch too many fish, that the fish aren't too small, etc. And then they passed another rule saying not only do you have to carry them on board, you have to pay their salary. And that's when the, the fisheries objected and they sued and they said, look, the statute says you can require us to carry a monitor. It doesn't say you can require us to pay their salaries. So this went up to the D.C. Circuit and a panel in a 2-1 vote said it's ambiguous, uh, the statute's silent, so therefore we're going to defer to what the agency wants to do. Uh, over a very strident, very uh, uh, forceful dissent by Judge Justin Walker, one of the newer judges on the D.C. Circuit, in fact, only two years older than Chevron deference, uh, who said, no, this was very clear. Uh, an agency does not have a power unless it's, uh, the statute says they have that power. Uh, so there's no ambiguity here when a statute doesn't authorize forcing people to pay for monitors. And so this is, just to be clear, this is an agency uh, not just interpreting authority to uh, make a decision on behalf of whether or not fishing boats must fishing vessels must carry this human being uh, on their boat. It's also a decision uh, assigning the cost of carrying this person on the boat, which is, not, as you said, seven hundred dollars a day is not a minor uh, expense. And th that's at the D.C. Circuit, the the Fifth Circuit recently uh, rendered an opinion in a case called. Cargill v. Garland. Um, generally, what did what did that case tell us? Uh, so that was a case about the 
rule during the Trump administration about whether uh, bump stocks, which are essentially a, a tool that can be used to convert um, a n- sort of a normal gun, non-automatic gun into more of an automatic gun, uh, something akin to a machine gun. And that was about whether statutory text essentially allowing the regulation of machine guns um, applied to these devices. Uh, so much different factual context, um, but fundamentally the same the same question, which is how far can an agency stretch uh, a textual clause uh, to regulate uh, some to do something it had never done before. All right. So uh, what what does that give us in terms of the likelihood of the Supreme Court looking at this squarely again? It's a good question. The The D.C. Circuit petition has a lot of firepower behind it. You've got Paul Clement uh, as the counsel of record. And so that's certainly going to get attention. You've got the dissent from Judge Walker. Um, and so that's going to get the D.C. Circuit to at least take a close look at it. One wrinkle is that for at least the immediate future, uh, Justice Jackson is likely to be recused from all D.C. Circuit appeals. So we, it's still to be determined, will the Supreme Court be a little less likely to take D.C. Circuit cases that might be precedent setting for that reason, because they want to have a full court if they're setting uh, major precedent. I don't know if that's going to stand in, in the way, but it's at least something to consider. Um, but you certainly have momentum building on the court. We had a dissent from denial of certiorari written by Justice Gorsuch um, or just la- late last year in a case called Buffington about veterans' rights and, and veterans' benefits, essentially saying it's time to end Chevron deference. Even the original champions of it, like Justice Scalia, ended up seeing the flaws in it. Uh, the conservative legal movement, if you want to call it that, has very much moved from pro-Chevron to anti-Chevron and I think a good trend of being more more in favor of judges exercising their constitutional authority to say what the law is and, and fully you know, engage with their requirements. Um, and so I think all of those factors are coming together to make people think it's just a matter of time before the Supreme Court squarely addresses Chevron. And, and let's say for the moment that Chevron deference goes away, this uh, deference to agencies interpreting their own statutory authority. Um, presumably that wipes out so-called our deference as well. Is that right? Most likely, yes. I mean, it would probably, unless the Supreme Court says it explicitly, uh, that's likely to be a, a separate decision. But the logic would have to be essentially the same, whether it's interpreting a statute or whether it's interpreting a regulation. Uh, the key question is really whose job is it to make legal interpretations, judges or agencies? And so once you've sort of taken out that premise or once you've rejected the premise that agencies are in a better position to interpret the law when that law has to do with their area of expertise, then you can't really justify deference in any question of law, whether it's interpreting statutes or regulations. Right. Because just for the edification of listeners, our deference is uh, not interpreting your statutory authority. It's interpreting your own rules, uh, yes. which gave agencies uh, in some ways carte blanche to uh, radically alter their own interpretations of their own regulatory uh, rules on a whimsical basis. So again, if, if Chevron deference is wiped out by this court, how does that change uh, how judges have to apply the law, because you might expect if if agencies are suddenly no longer able to interpret 
sometimes very complicated uh, statutory language uh, or, you know, try to figure out what their authority is, does that then give judges the uh, impetus to throw things back to Congress and say, you need to clarify this? Well, it's a good it's a good question. Judges are very hesitant to, as you say, throw things back to Congress because usually that requires sort of nullifying a law or nullifying at least part of a law, um, and that's kind of a last resort. Uh, they, as I said, they'll do it more often in criminal law because there it's a serious injustice if you're essentially putting someone in prison um, for doing something that it wasn't clear the law bans. Usually, for administrative law questions. Uh, courts just have to decide one way or another: does this uh, does this power exist or does it not? And I think what Judge Walker and other judges have forcefully argued is that the presumption should be that unless something is clearly stated as an authority granted by Congress, the presumption is the agency doesn't have it because of the constitutional system of veto gates. That essentially the default is the executive branch does not have a power until a bill passes the House, the Senate, and is signed by the president giving it at that power. So to the extent it's tossing it back to Congress, I mean, you could say that when when the tie goes to no authority, that's essentially judges doing that, saying if Congress thinks it's a good idea, it is actually a good idea for them to have this authority, you can pass an amendment to the bill making that explicit. Tommy Berry is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. Feel free to both subscribe and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.